How's everybody? Are we good? We're ready to get involved in the Psalms this morning. Good to see everyone here. I'm glad that you're present. And I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 5 as we are going to continue our series by examining this great hymnal of sacred songs known to us as the book of Psalms given to us by the Spirit of God. Let's go right to Psalm 5. For the choir director, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will worship in the fear of you. O Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the abundance of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. This is the reading of God's word. In early December 1944, General George S. Patton, Jr. Third Army, was positioned for a breakthrough against the Rhine River, So they would go across it to open the door to the Western Allies' invasion of Germany. The date for the attack was set in December 19th, but because of extreme weather, it seemed as if the attack would have to be postponed. They would have the invasion and the rescue of American troops leading to the Battle of the Bulge delayed. The outcome of that battle and possibly the entire Allied force in Europe would hinge on the weather. At 11 a.m. in the morning of December 8th, General Patton phoned the head chaplain of the Third Army, James H. O'Neill. And he said to him, and this is the conversation as it went, Chaplain, this is General Patton. Do you have a good prayer for weather? We must do something about those rains if we are to win the war. Chaplain O'Neill, unsure of how to answer, searched through books on prayer, but he couldn't find any books on prayer relating to the weather. And so he assured the general that he would compose an original prayer which he typed on a note card. Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains with which we have had to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee that armed with thy power we may advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and the wickedness of our enemies and establish thy justice among men and nations. Patton read the quote, returned to O'Neill, and said, I want 250,000 copies printed out 
and made sure that all the men would get a copy ASAP. Not long after the prayer was written and distributed, the third army began to pray with great intensity. After the prayer was distributed, another letter went out. Urge all of your men to pray, not alone in church, but everywhere. Pray when driving, pray when fighting, pray alone, pray with others, pray by night and pray by day. Pray for the cessation of the immoderate rains, for good weather, for battle. Pray for the defeat of our wicked enemy whose banner is injustice and whose good is oppression. Pray for victory. Pray for our army and pray for peace. Patton's assistant would later write, On the 23rd, the day after the prayer was issued, the weather cleared and remained perfect for about six days enough to allow the allies to break the backbone of the enemy's offensive and to turn a temporary setback into a crushing defeat for the Nazis. On Christmas Eve, Chaplain O'Neill was called into Patton's office. The General Rose came from behind the deck, outstretched his arm, and said, Chaplain, you are the most popular man in this headquarters. You sure stand in good with the Lord. And the General pinned a bronze star medal on Chaplain O'Neill's chest to commemorate the victory that was so desperately needed. Now, I tell you that story because it highlights a central truth that we're going to see in the psalm before us, Psalm 5, namely that great leaders in moments of great need are compelled to turn to God in great prayer. Now, it's true the general of World War II was not a believer by any stretch of the imagination. True, he did not know the God to whom he prayed. But what we see in that example is the enormous pull of desperation in the face of overwhelming opposition that makes even a pagan leader plead to heaven for help. The Bible is full of such examples, just so you know, of leaders in power, kings and nations, kings of God's own people, humbling themselves for the moments of the most difficulty and then praying for themselves and the people. Give you an example, King Hezekiah once that he learns of an upcoming encroachment of the king of Assyria, goes straight to God himself without asking Isaiah the prophet to pray on his behalf and prays in Isaiah 37, 14 and following, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you alone are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the the living God. Of a truth, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. When King Hezekiah prayed this prayer, Isaiah, without even being told about the prayer, received a word from the Lord and sent it to Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me, because you have prayed to me, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning the Assyrian king. Because you have raged against me and your arrogance has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back the way by which you came. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. A royal prayer from the heart of a godly king expressing the love for the people of God and the reputation of God. Psalm 5 is one such prayer. 
Psalm 5 is prayed by the king of Israel, as the superscription tells us, a psalm of David on behalf of himself and the people that he ruled. And once he prayed this prayer, this prayer many thousands of years ago, it was put to music by the priest to the sound of flutes or hollowed reeds guiding the melody and placed before his people a reminder of all how God's chosen should pray to him in times of need. Though this psalm doesn't detail in specifics the enemies that make up the battle before David, by looking at the clues before us in the text, we can see that they are called in verse 5a, the boastful, the 5b, the workers of iniquity. They are those who speak falsehood, who are men of bloodshed and deceit, verse 6. Later in verse 9, we see that they're described as a people of unreliable speech, inwardly destructive speaking out those things that speak of death and flattery and those who are ultimately, as verse, verse 10 says, rebellious against the one true God. So overall, they're liars. Overall, they are deceivers. They are a brood of rebels who are outside the nation of Israel. They raise their fits to the God of David and who are bent on spilling blood by murder through deception. And this is the reality that moves the king into prayer. Because of the burden that he bears concerning the rebellion outside of his camp, because of the heartache he feels concerning those who are in his camp and being lied about as the people of God, because of the desperation that he holds deeply due to the senseless bloodshed that is being spilt, David now has nowhere to look but upward and therefore gives us a model, a pattern of what is a mourning plea for the master's protection. That's the title of this message, a mourning plea for the master's protection. And in this plea, in this prayer, you're going to notice four aspects of David's petition in Psalm 5 that's going to guide us all in times of trouble. You're going to see four elements, if you would, of godly prayer, if you want to go more broadly, that we would be wise to remember when the world seems as if it has come after us if we're ever to rest in the protection of God. I'll give them to you up front, and then I'll go over them again as the message unfolds. But first, we see a humble appeal for Yahweh's care in verses 1 through 3, a confident recognition of Yahweh's character in verses 4 through 7, a somber petition for Yahweh's correction in verses 8 through 10, and a joyful invitation for Yahweh's cover in verses 11 and 12. And again, I will go over that to make sure that you get them. But what I want you to notice is that through this entire psalm, God has preserved for us this prayer in that in the core of everything that David writes, no matter what's going on, no matter how dire the circumstances are, no matter how impending the oncoming storm seems to be, at the center of everything that David prays is this deeply settled conviction that God's character in his stronghold and his justice is his hope. And so let's begin by looking at this first element of godly prayer in the life of David. Namely, we're going to see, number one, a humble appeal for Yahweh's care. A humble appeal for Yahweh's care. And we see this in the first three verses. David writes, Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Here we have a man 
a king who has been overwhelmed with need. We have a man who is speechless with concern. A man who has risen first thing in the morning before he speaks to his wife, before he speaks to the kingly court that are around him. He goes and is filled with thoughts that have plagued him all throughout the night, overwrought with the meditations too deep for words, pondering that grips his soul. And he begins this cry for help first and foremost by reminding himself of who it is that he's crying out to. Verse 1, give ear to my words, O Yahweh. If you have a New American Standard or English Standard Version, you see O Lord in your text, all capitalized. But when you have a Legacy Standard translation, it just stands out so vividly because this covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh, is right before you. Yahweh, I am that I am. The only true God, the same God that led Israel out of bondage in Egypt, the same God who everywhere longs to have his name known to the nations. This is the same God who tells us, Psalm, 1, Psalm 21, Yahweh answers you in a day of trouble and protects you. This is the same God in Proverbs 18.10 that says, The righteous run to Yahweh, a strong tower, and are protected. Psalm 91.14, Yahweh protects you because you know his name and are devoted to him. Isaiah 43.1, Yahweh, the one who created you, calls you by name and protects you. This is the one that David calls to. This is the one that he appeals to. And he doesn't start this prayer with a kind of familiarity that breeds contempt. He doesn't look on towards heaven with a demand or, or a command that he wants something from God and will insist it, he humbly appeals to the God of Scripture to hear him, to hear him, to consider the silent meditation of his heart that now he opens his mouth wide to put into words. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament tells us that even when we don't know what to say, even when we don't have words that come to mind, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans on our behalf and places those groans before the Father's ear so the children can know that what they're trying to express is heard. It says in Romans 8, 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. David, at this point in the psalm, doesn't even know yet how to pray, what to pray. David's, it says, meditations, his thoughts are yet unexpressed. They are still in his bosom, yet to be articulated. They're forming in his mind, but they are yet to be put into words. He's moved in his spirit, but the process of articulation is far away still. It's like what Augustine told us, we may pray most when we say least, and we may pray least when we say most. That's like the Pharisees and Sadducees with their repetition of repetition. You see, the moments before we pray, the moments before we put thoughts into words are the moments when we wrestle with our intentions. That's the moment where we question our right to even speak. Speak to God. We, we deliberate about the wisdom or the lack of therein in the words we're about to say. But sometimes we forget that God already knows what we're going to say before we even say it. 
Remember Psalm 139, even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. Before I can put into speech that which is speechless within me, you already know what I'm going to say. And so David says, you know my thoughts, you know the trouble of my heart, but please consider what my soul is trying to say by verse 2, giving heed to the sound of my cry for help. This is a cry. This is a sound from his spirit that's not just an increase of decibels and volume. This is a cry that is forced to the surface from his mouth out of the depth of his heart as an acknowledgement that he has nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else to cry to. This is a cry that takes the form of words, but starts first as an appeal to heaven before his mind even knows what he wants to say. And then again, this humble king acknowledges that he himself is not the only king, that the king has another king, the greater king, a king who is not only monarch, but who alone is God. Verse 2c, my king and my God. I'm speaking to the one, my king and my God, from which every need is answered. Immediately when he says that, my thoughts go back to the Apostle Thomas, of course, who was weary in the New Testament of his master's resurrection. He was suspicious that it had happened, so wounded. He was just so broken, so, so spent, that even when the other disciples told him that Jesus has risen, Jesus has risen from the grave, he is alive, that it was too much pain for Thomas to even consider the, the truth of that, that the Lord had promised that it would come to pass, but his pain distracted him. So when Thomas saw the risen Lord and he saw the piercing of his hands and the wound in his side, the astonished apostle proclaimed, my Lord and my God. David knew this well. David knew the king was his God, his Lord, his master. And though he had never seen the Lord, he had never known the Lord physically in any kind of sense like the Lord Jesus appeared to Thomas He knew who he was, and he was the king, and he was the king, true God, the true creator, the true sovereign, the true hope of all mankind. And I think this one statement here in verse 2 is really key to the entire psalm. The true God, the Yahweh of Scripture, it is he that is king, and he is God. He is ruled by Yahweh. He is ruled by Yahweh as his master and the God of his people, And so it's to this king, this king of Israel, the true king of Israel, that the king of Israel prays. You know, a king is to care for his people. A king, as a mother in Proverbs 31, the mother of King Lemuel instructs, talking about what a king is to be, says, open his mouth, the king is, for the mute, for the justice of all those passing away. He is to open your mouth to judge righteously, to render justice to the afflicted and the needy. This is the responsibility of a king. Listen, you're not going to petition. Think about this. You're not going to call on the one who cannot help you. You're not going to cry out to someone who is incapable of providing protection that you seek. No, you are going to know deep down inside that it's the God that made you, the God that made your enemies, that rules with justice and power and considers you to be his child. Then you humbly open your heart to the one who already knows your heart, but delights in your cry, knowing that he and he alone can protect you, for he and he alone truly cares for you. 
Ian Bounds said, the central significance of prayer is not in the things that happen as results, but in the deepening intimacy and unhurried communion with God at his central throne of control. And that knowledge brings voice to your cry. And that knowledge makes you rise up early in the morning to lay out your case before the king. We see that in verse 3. Oh, Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. I think it's true for most of us that morning is the natural time to pray when your heart is wrestling with concerns over the night. It is a moment where the dawn is rising and you still are in your struggle, but it's starting to pass away and we are awakened from sleep and we realize that we have been given another day that the Lord has told us as he has said in his word, his compassions are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so our first thought Many times it's just to reach out to the king of our prayers. And so it seems to be actually a part of the tradition of the Jewish people. According to the book of Daniel, Daniel would pray three times a day, Daniel 6.10. King David himself says in Psalm 55.17 that he prayed evening, morning, and at noon. According to this tradition, it's again a tradition, 9 a.m. is the first hour of prayer when the temple gates were opened. The Hebrew word for this hour of prayer is morning. 3 p.m. is the second hour of prayer. The Hebrew word for this hour of prayer is the word that's translated gift offering. This hour of prayer was also known as the hour of confession. The next day began at sundown or about 6 p.m. So according to Jewish time, it's about the ninth hour. And it could be that this prayer that David prayed would be offered alongside David's first prayer and the sacrifice that he would give in the house of the Lord. And I say that because when you look at the middle part of verse 3, you see the phrase, I will order my prayer to you. It also could have a meaning and does have a meaning in different contexts of laying wood on the altar and preparing for the sacrifice, indicating that he was about to go to the sanctuary and lay out a sacrifice, presumably to accompany the prayer that he was offering in this psalm. A little bit more on that later as we go, but just suffice it to say, either as a prayer or as a sacrifice, a prayer of necessity or a prayer to go alongside his ritual, here we know again that he speaks of God's covenant-keeping name and he does so with the anticipation of God's receptivity to his words, you will hear my voice. You will hear my voice. In saying this, David is not just pouring out a wishful thought. He's, he's not demanding an audience with Almighty God. He's rather affirming what he already knew to be true of Yahweh. And that is the Lord hears the cries of his children. Psalm thirty-four, seventeen: When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. He doesn't hear or is obligated to hear the However, the cries of the wicked, Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Even the blind man in John 9, who was healed by Jesus, speaks of just the common knowledge of the Jews of his day when he said, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. So David's heart of prayer is one of appealing to God, of his salvation, with the knowledge that Yahweh will hear him. The only question is, 
when will he act? When will he move? When will God come to the rescue? When will God move on David's behalf? So all David can do is wait. All David can do here is watch and wait. He says at the very end of the verse when he starts to speak in verse 3, in the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Watching like a soldier positioned in a tower. Watching and waiting in anticipation and expectation of what will come. He's watching and he's waiting and he's trusting that God will hear him and he knows God has heard him, but when will God act upon him? He will act. He will answer. But when? When? As it was said, I've prayed many prayers when no answer came. I've waited patient and long. But answers have come to enough of my prayers to make me keep praying on. The reason David can wait and watch leads to the second aspect of our prayer. The second element of David's prayer that we would be wise to remember. Not only does he have a humble appeal for Yahweh's care, but now we're going to see the reason why. Number two, because he has a confident recognition of Yahweh's character. A humble appeal for Yahweh's care and a confident recognition of Yahweh's character. And we see this in verses 4 through 7. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. I want you to notice that at the very core of this, the very core of this prayer is the recognition that Yahweh is holy, that Yahweh is is godly in his character. And because of his holy character, and he knows who those are lying, he knows who those are wicked and evil and set on bloodshed and will never triumph over the truth of God. Because Christ, God, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Spirit are holy the holy God of Scripture. He's saying, I order my prayer before you. I lay out my case before you, O God. I offer my sacrifice before you, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and I watch. For, verse 4, here's the reason, for you are a God who, and then he lists what he knows of this God that he fears and he worships. And the way he does this is by comparing and contrasting what he knows about God with what he knows about his enemies and realizes that the Lord stands against everything that they stand for. That Yahweh will not allow his people to undergo the schemes of wickedness without providing a safeguard for them because the nature of who God is, the nature of God's character is his hope. There is such a confidence here about God's utter holiness and perfection that It allows David to see and trust in God even when God seems very far away, even when he's not answering the prayer that he's prayed in the instant he prays it, even when there seems to be no evidence of victory before him, he understands the victory within him through God to be trustworthy through and through. Now, before we look at all these different comparisons and contrasts, I want to go with you now just to remember for a moment who God is. 
I want you to remember who God is, the, the, the God that we come to in tears, the God that we come to in need, the God who is the rock of our salvation and our anchor. I want to remind you of this God. True, we are not kings and queens of Israel. True, we are not those who have the weight of a ruling nation on our shoulders. Our troubles are much, much different. Our troubles are meaningful and they have the weight of our lives upon them, but they are much different. We may not be fearful of our inability to protect a people, but we are burdened about our need to protect the people in our lives. We may not need to be driven to prayer because of the, of the attack of an army, but we are driven to prayer because of the attack of the evil one. So though our prayers may not be soaked in the same tears because of the national concerns like a king, we still fall before our God with concerns about our private lives, about what's happening within us, about the future, about the health of our loved ones, a myriad of different issues that could be concerning us. And we keep staring to the ceiling because we can't sleep because it's the time that we need to remember who God is as we cry out to him. So remember who he is. God, number one, is infinite. He's the infinite one. Just some quick verses here. The Lord reigns forever and ever, Exodus 15, 18. God is never ending with no beginning, no end. He was created by nothing and is self-existent. He is not a God far away and unreachable to us at any time. He will reign for, as Lord forever and ever. God is also the omnipotent one. The omnipotent one, it says in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God is also the omniscient one, the all-knowing one. Psalm 147, 5, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. God is also the omnipresent one. The omnipresent one, Psalm 139, 7-8, we went through it just a few weeks ago. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. God is also the all-loving one. Beloved, 1 John 4, 7-8 says, let us, not, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is also the definition of what is good. Psalm 136.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. God is the Holy One, Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord is the one who is perfectly just. The work is perfect for all his ways are just. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So just over and over, all the way through Scripture, from the New Testament to the Old Testament, we we see more and more that the more we know about the God we serve, the more we can trust him in the results of what concerns us. And so back to Psalm 5. David can watch and wait because he knows God's character and his professions. And specifically here in verse 4, he knows, verse 4a, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. You are not a God that delights in wickedness. How does he know that? Why? Psalm 37, 28, for the Lord delights in justice and does not abandon his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will in time be cut off. 
David can watch and wait because he knows, verse 4b, evil does not sojourn, it does not travel alongside, it does not make its tent with you. Why? Isaiah 45, 6, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. David knows that he can watch and wait because he knows, verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Why? Because David knew the same thing that Isaiah meant when he cries out after seeing the Lord in a vision, Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. David knows that he can watch and wait because, verse 5b You hate all workers of iniquity. Why? Because Psalm 92 confirms, For behold, your enemies, O Yahweh, for behold, your enemies will perish. All of the workers of iniquity will be scattered. And by the way, in that particular section, he's not speaking of merely just those who sin. This is a participle where it describes a people whose characteristic is that act of doing iniquity. That's their constant mode. And God hates them because they are incompatible with his holy and righteous nature. David can watch and wait because he knows, verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood. In fact, some of the very last words in the whole of Scripture in Revelation twenty-two fifteen warn us that those who practice falsehood will not be allowed into heaven. David knows that you can watch and wait because, verse 6b, Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. From the very first spilling of blood when Abel's blood cried out against Cain to God's covenant with Noah, it is said, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man, Genesis 9-6. Yahweh will abhor and call into account David's enemies. God's holy character is in direct opposition to all those who oppose the king, and David knows it, and he knows it very well. But there's something missing here, isn't there? There's something else that keeps David's voice crying for help. There is something else that keeps David eagerly watching for the answer from Yahweh. Yes, David is clear about God's character and relationship to all the enemies that he opposes, but there's something else that keeps the king in a state of expectation as he prays. He is sure of God's character in relationship, get this, to himself as well, to himself. Verse seven, but as for me, But as for me, the only reason we can pray, this is the only reason we can hope to hear a word from heaven, that there is a difference between those that assail him and himself. There is a reason that he can come before a holy God and pray for help from one who is my king and my God, and that isn't what most people think. David doesn't, listen, begin here to list his resume of accomplishments or achievements. He doesn't begin now to contrast his goodness over his enemy's wickedness. He doesn't begin to chronicle the events of his own innocence or to bring up his humility over their boastfulness. He doesn't cry out about concerning his honesty and he doesn't cry out about his bloodlessness because he couldn't. Later in his life, 
King David would tell his son Solomon, 1 Chronicles 22.8, The word of Yahweh came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Do you understand what I'm saying? David could not come before his king with any claim of godliness. David could not raise his prayers to God because of the confidence that he has in himself. He couldn't wake up in the morning and lift up holy hands and offer up his petitions because of his own excellent character. But because of his confidence in the character of God, listen to this, because of his confidence in that same character of God that David claims will crush his enemies, ironically, is the same confidence in the character of God that allows him to say in verse 7, but as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, in the abundance of your loyal love, in the overflow of your tender mercy, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will worship in the fear of you. This is astonishing. This is unfathomable. And it's truth in the psalm, in all the psalms. The Yahweh, the covenant-keeping king and God, that is the object of David's prayer, the one true God, has covered him with his undeserved, loyal love. So now David can pour out his heart knowing that the same perfect character of God that condemns his enemies is the same perfect character of God that has accepted him by his love into the house of God where now he can worship the Lord of lords because of his own faithfulness to him. said is a covenant word that describes the faithful love of God for those who are the members of his covenant. And the stress there is on the faithfulness of that love, the faithfulness of that love. I'm sure you're thinking, this is the miracle of regeneration. This is the miracle of forgiveness and grace. Whether it be an Israelite from the Old Testament, whether it be a God-fearing Israelite of the New Testament, whether it be a born-again Christian of the New Testament, all of these relationships come to bear due to the undeserved, unmerited love of Yahweh for those who He chooses to love out of His own perfect character. King David did not know the name of Jesus Christ. He understood now in heaven the name but it was through the merit of Jesus Christ that King David received this loyal love and forgiveness from God. David knew Yahweh was God. He knew that Yahweh commanded righteousness and rejection of wickedness and iniquity and falsehood and bloodshed and deceit. But listen, it was too late for David, as it's too late for all of us. David could not be accepted by God through keeping the law. It was too late. Sin had already reigned in him. It was too late. He was guilty of the same kind of sins that God's holy character judges in all men and women. But David had come before Yahweh, and before him he had cried for help, as he does here in Psalm 5, and he cried for forgiveness of his sin before he could cry for help from his sin. He had to recognize there was no hope for him. There is no hope for any of us. Unless this holy God who alone can rescue and forgive extends that loving kindness to us through faith 
a faith that can only be granted by God to those who repent of their unbelief and throw themselves upon the mercy of a great and powerful God. And this abundance of loving kindness that David talks about, that allowed David to enter the house of God, verse 7b, this holy temple didn't produce in him, listen, a whimsicalness as he entered into this place. God's loyal love didn't make David feel prideful because David was given this loyal love over his enemies. It produced in him the desire to worship Yahweh, look what it says, in fear of you. Verse 7b, at your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. Just so you know, some commentators have doubted that David could have been the author of this psalm, even though the superscription clearly states it, because the house of the Lord and the temple are words that were applied to the sanctuary at Silo before David was even on the scene. But the Hebrew word for house is used the same way in Joshua 6.24 and 2 Samuel 12.20 to refer to the tabernacle in Shiloh as a reference to the earthly sanctuary. Same thing is true for the word temple being used as the temporary location of the sanctuary in Shiloh. So David's authorship is secure. And I say that because what we see here now is David can enter into this meeting place of God. David can enter into this place of sacrifice, a place of worship with full assurance of faith. He can go with the fear of God in his heart because he knows he dare not enter this holy place based on his own merits, but solely because of the merit of God that could not be secured on David's behalf without a sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10.10 tells us, by this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. No one enters, listen, to the house of the Lord being lavished in this loyal love unless God has taken his dead, lifeless soul and made it alive by his own doing. God must have that sin dealt with. God must have every sin, past, present, and future, accounted for. It must be punished. And neither David, nor you, nor I, nor Anyone else can even begin to pray for one sin, much less a lifetime of sin to be forgiven without him. But someone must pay. Someone must pay the price. Someone must die over and over again. But as one person can die over and over again, no one can unless they had an infinite capacity to be punished over and over again. Even in the multitude of those sacrifices, it would have to go on for eternity. No, it had to be one moment. One sacrifice that would take the place for all who would ever sin. It would be the punishment for all who would ever hear these words for you, for me, for David, and for all who plead that that substitutionary atonement might be on our behalf. And that produces fear. That produces a fear that the Apostle Paul speaks of as the guiding force of how we're to work out Philippians to our lives, knowing that it's you working in us for your good pleasure. 
So David here now is unfolding for us these different aspects of prayer that are going to help us in times of trouble. There's two more aspects here in Psalm 5, and you're going to see those next time we meet. I just didn't have time. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We're thankful because we see even in this psalm a prayer that we too in our day and age might see ourselves praying. We see the world and its corruption. We see this nation turning its ear away from you. We see the misery and the bloodshed and the panic and all of those things that grip our hearts daily on top of our own personal fears and our own personal inadequacies and our own doubts and misgivings. And we find in this psalm something that reminds us of ourselves. We see, Lord, that we too must humbly come before you. We must humbly beseech you and recognize that you are the source of all good things and all protection. We must also trust in the fact that as we pray, we are praying because of your character, because of who you are and not because of who we are. There is nothing in us, not one thing that could ever raise the finger to not only save us, but to continue our sanctification, to grow us up into the likeness of your Son, And so we see even in this prayer our own need to compare what we think along with your perfections. And as we shall see next time, Lord, it is even these kind of prayers that pray us for your kingdom to come now, for evil to be done away with, for your good and glorious righteousness to dwell in our place even now. And then we see that because of that, we will be able to take the refuge in you, the shelter, the shield that protects us that we so desperately need day in and day out. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for Psalm 5. Thank you for as the flutist played and the people of Israel sang that we can also find our hope in these same words. And we thank you because of the inspired text that has been given to us by your Spirit. For it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.